Welcome to NARC, Narcissistic Abuse Recovery Collaborators. If you enjoyed today's episode, please follow the rest of my podcast and visit my um, articles on medium.com, my website at narctroopers.com, and I even have a video blog on YouTube. Like and share with people that you think could use this information. The topic for today is if you're happy and you know it, if you're happy and you know it, you know the rest, right? Cluster B, antisocial personality disordered narcopaths believe that if they feel happy, the whole world should sing along with them. So here's my story. He said to me, a couple of weeks ago when I talked to him on the phone. He said, I am happy now. I am free to do what I want to do all the time. I go to movies. The climate here in San Francisco is the perfect sweater weather all the time. And I have a COVID companion. She makes me very happy. I always have a smile on my face. The last conversation that I had with my narcopath ex-husband was really all about his life and how it was just a bowl of cherries with ice cream and a sweet little cherry or probably two or three or a threesome or something like that on top right that's what he has a bowl of cherries not once did he ask how I was doing in the desolation and rubble of the nuclear event that he dropped in my lap about 15 months ago. Not one shred of even feigned, faked, false empathy, compassion, or mercy. No shame, no conscience, no regret, nothing. With perfectly executed little jabs and barbs, he is a gifted torturer with impressive skills on how to twist the blade in all the wounds that are just beginning to heal and stop bleeding. I felt like dying, but stopped myself because I knew that he would be tap dancing a happy tune with his pandemic partner all over my grave if I were to give up the ghost. So I made a little deal with myself and I swore that if he ever tries to kill me and I die, I'm taking him with me. That's just how it has to be. The people with cluster B personality disorders are narcissists, sociopaths, and psychopaths who are incapable of true emotions that make us human. They can be sweet as pie, so super polite and helpful, and still have a heart of stone sitting in their perfect little bosoms. Do men have bosoms? I digress. The abject cruelty that seems to come out of nowhere and eviscerates your very being, shreds your soul, and leaves you lifeless and ruined, just ruined. It's not even the worst part of the entire narcissistic abuse cycle. The thing that is the hardest thing to comprehend and the most crushing thing to experience is the sudden overnight transformation from 
everything is fine and I will love you forever to pure, unadulterated, high-potency contempt. Let's think about that. Where does it come from? And how do they suddenly become consumed with this contempt out of nowhere with no warning? Well, as for myself, I felt something vague, unsettling, and yet, I don't know, impossible to define about a year before he discarded me. It was a feeling of danger, antipathy coming from him, and disdain. Although he never uttered a single harsh word, the subtlety of his criticisms that signaled my fall from grace was almost imperceptible, but packed a powerful punch. It was palatable. I could just feel it. He mocked the way I said certain words in a way that could be taken as playful at first, like maybe just teasing or something, but it had a meanness about it. And the lack of concern, if I suffered some injury or something like that, the odd look on his face when I spoke to him sometimes, the way he walked ahead of me whenever we were out and about. I dismissed these subtle microaggressions and thought that we were simply going through some bumpy times. People go through bumpy times, right? Uh, couples do. And, and so we, we were applying for jobs and planning a cross-country move. Yes, that's insane. I thought we were just distracted or preoccupied. And that's why things were a little fussy a little bit here and there. But it was something else entirely that I just didn't see coming. Looking back, I remember his face as I talked about our move to Boston and news from our real estate agent, Risa. It was a preview of the contempt that would soon follow. It was a look that said he loathed me, just loathing all over it. He disrespected me. He, he wanted me to die or at least disappear. He found me revolting and repulsive, and he no longer wanted to wear the mask. That's what his face said to me. His decision to leave was already in the works when this was going on that last year. He was plotting his escape and testing the waters. While I was working fervently to plan a new life with him up in the Northeast, he was planning his exit and lining up my replacements. I thought we were doing this thing together, this move, this like newer, better, different, fresher place with all these opportunities and new experiences and adventures. But nope, that's not what was happening. And sure, there were signs. Looking back, I recall countless texts during our evenings together, texting, texting, at dinner, out on the weekends, at movies, and in other places. Always interruptions. I wondered who it could be. He didn't really have any friends, although I often encouraged him to find us some couple friends to hang out with. I, I wasn't, you know... I just couldn't figure out who was who could be texting him. It wasn't work. 
Sometimes these texts came late at night at bedtime. We were both teachers, and there's no reason for other teachers to be texting him at 10 or 10.30 at night. Oh, I should have paid attention. I should have grabbed that phone and taken a look and to see who it was, who she was. He was practicing. And after he was gone, he revealed, he confessed that he had cheated just to try to experiment and to add some fun into his boring teacher life and his boring married life and to keep to help our marriage, to, to help our marriage survive by cheating. He thought he could infuse a little excitement and keep it going, or at least that's what he said. Incomprehensible justifications to rationalize being a cheater, a liar, a player, and an adulterer. When that didn't work, he blame-shifted and said his betrayals were all my fault. My only sin, mine, my only fault, was staying with him for so long. After, you know, way after healthy people would have walked away, I was still there. I held on and I hoped for the best. I believed that love could conquer anything. I just didn't understand that he was incapable of knowing what love was, much less being able to effectively hold on to it or maintain it. So what is the real reason that narcopaths feel so much contempt for their partner towards the end and during the devaluation stage? Well, there's probably two main reasons for the narcopath's excessive and unwarranted contempt. So the first is probably because someone important from their childhood projected this emotion onto them, this contempt, and it imprinted this type of negative behavioral expression which they replicated in when as they grew older and became young adults and adults. The second reason for this contempt, I'm guessing it's due to projected shame and rage. The narcopath is incapable of experiencing any real depth of feeling, so they project their shame and rage onto certain targets so they don't have to carry it themselves. This projection sometimes manifests as disgust and contempt. Targets function, their role in the relationship is to be garbage dumps for their partner's projected toxicity. So, narcopaths suffer from a character deficit and moral bankruptcy. The only thing they genuinely feel at their core is the necessity to maintain the false narrative that they are superior and omnipotent beings. It is essential to their emotional survival, and it eclipses everything else. They may use their false personas to construct an image of a good person with honorable characteristics, and may even cultivate a charming, charismatic, compassionate image. But one thing is for sure, for certain, none of it is real. None of it is real. It's all a facade. Contempt is demoralizing and deadly. It is the opposite of empathy and compassion, and it completely invalidates the victim and just makes them helpless. The contempt is followed by the discard, sometimes final, sometimes there's a hoover, 
but there's a discard. And the new cycle begins with a fresh, sparkly new target. They begin the idealization stage or infatuation era, which is often known as the golden period that happens at the beginning of this abuse cycle. They feel excitement and hope that this new source of supply will, will, um, will be the fuel that will make them happy, happier than they have ever been. And they are receiving attention, adoration, affection, and these things are always present in a new relationship, right? And these are the things that hold them together. It's the glue for the narcopath. They cannot live without it. I often catch myself saying that that my ex-husband is simply dysregulated, mentally impaired, suffering from a personality disorder and comorbidities that render him incapable of being a healthy individual. While all of that may be true, there is something more insidious, something that makes him less of a man with a dysfunctional brain and faulty programming, and more of a selfish prick who consciously chooses to be a selfish prick. I have come to think that free will is something that we all possess, and although disordered people may have magical thinking and delusional perceptions, to some small degree, they still choose. They still are making a choice. Yes, at some point, maybe uh, at many little micro moments, micro moments, they choose. They do. And they choose to break the people who love them and destroy these people without a shred of accountability, remorse, or regret. You better believe it. In that sense, in that sense, they are not simply victims experiencing a trauma response to whatever happened to them when they were young. And they're not just victims of some other twisted and perverse pathology with their brain or whatever. Their maladapted dis delusional thinking fashions them into predators who watch their loved ones die a slow death painful death, while they just sit back and smirk at how foolish and disgusting that these victims are for being so stupid and weak. They find it repulsive, and they have contempt. When that partner loses their luster, when the shine begins to fade, then the narcopath has to get a new source of fuel. It's just that sim simple. And a word of caution is in order. Narcopaths cannot be vilified and demonized as just complete monsters due to their impaired mental state, nor can they be assigned the role of mere victims who suffer at the hands of their illness and dysregulation. This is what I'm saying here. They are really both. I guess that's the bottom line I'm trying to get to. They're both monster and victim. They are, and they're neither they're both, and they're, they're neither a monster or a victim, nor a victim. It is impossible to label or categorize, especially when you take into account the fact that there's no clear de delineation between different diagnoses. A person with a personality disorder like narcissism or psychopathy may also be bipolar or have a profound antisocial personality disorder. 
They may have comorbidities, such as porn addiction or sex addiction, coupled with manic depressive disorder. Chances are, if you have one issue, you most likely have others. I believe they often manifest in clusters of dysfunction. So it's not easy just to slap a label on someone. Even therapists and mental health professionals can sometimes miss things. Understanding the personality disordered partner isn't easy, but it's necessary to try if you have any hope of understanding what's happening to you following narcissistic abuse or some variation of that. If my ex had not already been put on the radar for cluster B personality disorder by our therapist, if I had not completed a graduate degree with a focus on guidance and counseling and studying of psychology, and if I had not spent a lifetime in treatment for my own disorders, from my dysfunctional childhood and all that, I would probably never have been able to understand why my divorce was very dissimilar and unlike that of all the other neurotypical people that were in my divorce support groups. What they were describing, what they were going through, had nothing to do with what I was experiencing. The trauma and resulting PTSD that ensues after being enmeshed with a narcopath is a life-threatening event that few, if any people, will ever understand unless they have experienced in themselves. How could they understand it? It's just insane. When I realized that many mental health professionals with similar degrees as mine actually had no training or experience or understanding, really, of narcissistic abuse syndrome and the trauma-related illnesses that work in conjunction with this dynamic, I was shocked. Church leaders who facilitate recovery groups are also ignorant and thus ill-equipped to deal with this kind of recovery. Everywhere I turned, I encountered misinformation, judgment, and a complete lack of resources to carry me through the crisis. The solution was to diagnose me with acute panic disorder and anxiety caused by trauma-related PTSD and throw prescription medication at me like party confetti. I have always been resistant to prescription meds and have spent years sharing books about big pharma like Prozac Nation and Overmedicated America. I've read these books and I don't want to be a statistic. Um, I did not want to be numb and fuzzy version of myself as I watched myself slush and drag through my days and, and nights you know, feeling nothing, remembering little, and not giving one last fuck. Friends in similar situations who were recovering from abusive partners only rested well with a cocktail of Ambien and vodka. I just, just felt like that isn't the way to go. I couldn't live like that. I had already lost all hope and will to even dare to think of a future. But surviving like that heavily medicated, was nothing more than just surviving. It certainly wasn't thriving. I remember losing years of my life as a teenager when I tried to anesthetize the pain with different substances. And you know, 
it was little more than a cloud all those years. And I just, it was like I was in a fog of numb despair. And the pain was still there underneath all of the things that I did to try to cover it up. So consider this. When you're wondering, like, who should I turn to? Just any therapist, any church counselor, any, like, a friend or a family member who knows nothing about what's going on. Think about this. If you wanted an expert to take you to the top of Mount Everest, you would most likely not consult the trained academic who can espouse the topography of the mountain and historical significance of the journey. No, you don't want that. You want someone who has fought their way up the side of every steep and perilous precipice, living to see the view at the summit, fighting, cursing, praying, faltering, only to rise up with bloody limbs and claim their spot at the top. That's who you want. I feel like I can be that mountain climber who is scaling the heights. Yes, I have a foundation of educated education rooted in psychological underpinnings of um, mental illness. I understand it pretty well. Um, I, more importantly, have lived it. I have sat beside it since my early childhood. I have observed it, studied it, and I have a thousand wild stories about how deep the sickness can carve out caverns in your soul and how the people who love you are poisoned and destroyed if they get too close. How you, how you wish more than anything that your legacy will not pass the curse to another generation, and then you have to watch helplessly as your progeny struggle with the same demons? The narcissist psychopath, hence narcopath, may believe he's happy, and in his infected and damaged mind, it is his alternate false reality. When I am crushed by my ex-husband's madness, I must not let my emotional thinking hijack my cognitive understanding of what this is, what this is that's happening. I have things within me, yeah, they're works in progress, in need of healing and wholeness, they're still crying out for unconditional love. I just have to learn to listen to that little voice in me and try to figure out what she needs. And what about the dysregulated people I have loved in my life, who through no fault of their own were too damaged and disordered to ever give me what I seek? Where are they now? Where, where are they? Well, they all live in a place where they are healthy, happy versions of the twisted visage they had to endure in this life. Whether they are still living or if they have passed, it doesn't matter because in this place they sing and dance and have such brightness in their faces, sparkle in their eyes, and joy in their laughter. They reside as these ghosts in my mind and in my heart until another time and another place 
allows us to come together again. And maybe, just maybe, when I see them in that faraway reunion, if we are together again at some time, we will all be happy. That's what I imagine. That is my hope. That is my dream. It's unattainable in this life because these people, these narcopaths, cannot be fixed. They cannot be healed. They can't change. They can't ever be connected to the source as we can be. They can never see the face of God and understand the moral constructs of virtue and sin, of good and bad, right and wrong, of what is immoral, amoral, and what is moral. Concepts like integrity and honesty and nobility and honor, they don't get it. None of it. It's just not possible. But for me, when I see them in this faraway place where they dwell in this happy space, I know that we will all be genuinely happy at last. Just not in this space and time. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If this was helpful in any way, please like and share. And until then, stay healthy, stay safe, and let's try to get to the other side of this and have hope, hope for for something wonderful coming, for health and happiness. Okay. Thank you, everyone. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now.